there. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to come together and to uh, fellowship around your word. I pray that um, you will open your word to us and that we will be receptive to what you have to say. Um, I pray for those that are struggling in various areas and uh, health issues and um, job issues and relationship issues and financial issues and all of these different things uh, that we're concerned about. Um, they worry us, and I pray that each of us can deliver those worries up to you and try to pay attention to what you're saying to us as you direct us. Um, maybe we need to make different health choices or lifestyle choices or uh, have uh, better habits in our lives. Maybe there's just things happening to us that we don't have any control over at all, and we've just got to trust you for all of it. But I pray that each of us will take it one day at a time, one step at a time, and know that you're God and nothing has taken you by surprise. I thank you that uh, we have the ability to join together now, and I just pray that uh, we'll listen to what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in John chapter 8, we finished up chapter 7 last week, and all I did was focus on verse 12 where Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? And we usually talk about that around Christmas time. Uh, so I'll direct you to last week for uh, an extensive um, exegesis of that particular verse. But what we're going to look at now is the reaction of the Pharisees to what Jesus said when he said he was the light of the world. Now, remember, there's a huge festival going on called uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, um, and uh, it was beautiful, and it was a huge celebration that lasted seven days. Um, part of that celebration was uh, the water ceremony where they, they took these, uh, these gold, actually one commentator said gold, one said silver, it seems to me, but flasks of water um, from uh, the pool of Siloam, which in chapter nine, Jesus tells a man who was born blind, to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And after Jesus makes clay uh, and puts it on his eyes and the man washes, he's healed. So it's kind of interesting. The word Siloam means scent. Uh, they dip these, uh, these vessels into the pool of Siloam. They come back and they pour the water out on the steps uh, at the temple. And uh, all during those seven days of celebration, they had these beautiful, huge candelabras and the whole area is lit. And they have this torch ceremony where they march around with these torches and they dance and so forth. So it's in the midst of that that Jesus says in 737, um, come to me, all that you, all you who thirst and... Uh, I will give you drink and it will become in you this, uh, the, there will be rivers of water that will flow forth from your innermost being, okay? Um, and then here at the same ceremony, uh, probably within, you know, a period of, uh, of, you know, a very short period of time, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So there's that light ceremony going on, Okay. Um, so now <clears throat> the Pharisees react probably not just to the light of the world saying, but also to the other saying as well. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 12 through 20. This is John 8, 12 through 20. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Or um, more accurately, perhaps, your testimony is not valid, right? Jesus answered and said to them, even if I am testifying about myself, my testimony is true or valid because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. That would be according to natural standards, right? I am judging, I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, um, or I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two people is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, well, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple area. And no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now remember, they had sent officers to arrest him. Uh, That was the end of chapter 7, right? But they didn't arrest him. They were amazed at what he had to say. So let's get into this. Jesus is still in the in the in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. He's used the ceremony of water and of light as a way to draw attention to himself from the natural to the spiritual. So they're they're looking at these ceremonies are uh, reminding the Israelites of what God had done for them while they were in the wilderness. Right? He had provided water from the rock for them. There's this little bug that is dive bombing me, and I'm gonna. Right in the middle of teaching the word, I'm going to murder the little guy because <laughs> he's really getting on my nerves here. <laughs> it's like right here in my. So if y'all, you know, so, so somebody out there needs to smell sweeter than me and attract him and then you can deal with him. So in any event, um, and then of course, there was the pillar of fire and it was pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And it was probably just a fiery cloud that, you know, lit up at night. And it uh, provided them with direction. That is the Israelites, the children of Israel, provided them with direction and protection. And Jesus is diverting their attention away from the history and saying, look, standing right here is someone who is the fulfillment of those things and who provides them for you um, in an eternal way today, okay? Um, So, the Pharisees don't believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, so they challenge his claims. Essentially, they're calling Jesus a self-promoted or self-proclaimed Messiah, and therefore not true. Jesus answered them by pointing out that he knows who he is because he knows where he came from and where he's going. He came from his Father in heaven, and he's going to return there. They're judging according to the flesh, the natural. And as a result, they cannot understand Jesus' actions or words. Well, the Apostle Paul pointed this out to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, a passage I've referred to previously, the Apostle Paul said, the natural man or the natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Every time we start Bible study, I'm praying that your mind will be open, that the Holy Spirit will speak to you. 
Because otherwise, this is just gobbledygook. No matter how much I try to help you to understand, if the Spirit is not speaking, if the Spirit is not interpreting, if the Spirit is not translating this and making it relevant to you, then I'm just babbling up here for you. Now, I would assume the Lord's saying something to you or you wouldn't keep coming every Wednesday. It's pretty hot out there. You know, you could just stay home and watch TV probably. Um, you know, and some of you did. You stayed home and watched TV, but you watched us, so that's good. Um, nonetheless, uh, we need to pray to have a spiritual mind. And so <clears throat> that helps us to penetrate this, this veil of flesh that is constantly interfering with our understanding. Um, the Pharisees are carnal, even though they're religious people. They're self-seeking with a focus, and their focus is not on God, but on self-aggrandizement. Um, this, this self-centeredness inhibits and prohibits spiritual understanding because they're ignoring the one who gives the spirit and understanding. So my question is, does that speak to you, right? Who are you thinking about right now? What are you thinking about right now? Right? Where's your mind? Who do you talk about most often? Most of us are, you know, focused entirely too much on self. Now, some of us are naturally unselfish people. I, I notice that with people. There are people that are just so unselfish, it's, it's convicting to me, right? They just have a tendency to want to look out for other people and care for other people. And that's good. Um, but what we're talking about here is being God conscious instead of being self-conscious, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit permits us to do and to be. And that's how we can begin to understand what God is trying to say through his word, right? So, and again, ah, I got him, you little booger. That's what I was thinking about, trying to be spiritual, but I think I got him. I think I smushed him. Because he was foolish and he landed right there. See, I, I got him to let his guard down and then I smashed him. <laughs> All right. Um, so you can be religious. Religious people can be very, very carnal, very fleshy. Hey, I got news for you. The devil is religious. He's really religious. He loves to use the law right? He loves to use God's own rules against us to convince, uh, you know, to convince you that you're not worthy in an effort to keep you from turning to the Lord, right? He just, guilt is healthy if it puts you in a position to confess to the Lord. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So once I have admitted, yes, I'm wrong, and I've confessed that to the Lord, then I receive his forgiveness and I move on. Well, the, the devil is like an unforgiving prosecuting attorney, right? In fact, he's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12, which incidentally, who was the person that the Lord revealed Revelation to? Who wrote it? 
John, same guy that we're studying right now, the same gospel we're studying right now, writer of the gospel we're studying right now, right? Um, in John, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 12, um, we see that the devil is the accuser of the brethren and he is thrown down, okay? The accuser of the brethren that accused us before God night and day was thrown down. Now he's on earth. And he and his helpers, if you will, these other fallen angels, which incidentally, these fallen angels are called what? Yeah. What's a fallen angel called? A demon. A demon, thank you. Which comes from the word daimon, which means a demigod. They think they're gods. They think they're all that, okay? And there's a lot of them. In that same uh, book of Revelation, chapter 12, it says that Satan, uh, he, is, he is likened to a serpent, swept away a third of the angels of heaven. He convinced a third of the angels of heaven to follow him. That's one persuasive, evil being, okay? So when we say Satan did this, Satan did that, Satan's not God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. What, is, what do those words mean? Omni just means all, okay? Omnipotent means he's not all-powerful. God is omnipotent, omnipotent, okay? Omniscient means he's, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Satan is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He's not God, Okay? And omnipresent, that should be obvious to you. What's omnipresent? He's everywhere. Satan can't be everywhere. Okay? He can only be in one place at a time. So he's very powerful, but he's not all powerful. He's really smart. God made him, and he's been around for a long time. I, that, I might not have gotten him because he's flying. Something's flying over there. <laughs> um. There's an old, I think it's, I want to say it's a Native American saying. Uh, it might not be Native American, uh, but it seems like I, I, I've heard this saying on a, like a cowboy movie or something, but I thought it was great. Um, the devil is not wise because he is the devil. He is wise because he's old. He's just been around for a long time and he's paid attention. Now, you know, he uses all that for his own benefit. Well, that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're, they're kind of, these religious leaders are essentially the politicians of their day. And they're just looking for the vote of the people. They want to maintain power. They want to manipulate people. It sounds like people today. Okay. Don't care what your politics is. I'm guaranteeing you, your politician wants to get elected and stay elected. That's just the way it works. Well, these people wanted to stay in power um, religious people can be and often are very, very carnal. Um, and that is definitely the case with these folks, okay? Um, and that includes believing in God. You know Satan believes in God, right? Right? James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the little epistle at the end of your New Testament called James. He was the the uh, pastor of the Jerusalem church after Jesus uh, was resurrected and ascended and the Holy Spirit fell. And uh, 
in his little epistle, um, he lets us know that the demons believe and they shudder, but they're not saved. Every time Jesus encountered someone who was possessed by a demon, they automatically threw the person to the ground or put the person on his knees or on their face and they confessed who he was. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see that over and over again. They can't help but do it. So don't think that just because, well, I believe in God, that that means anything. As we're gonna see, it is a faith that results in following Jesus. It's a faith that results in action. It's a faith that brings the transforming Holy Spirit into your life, right? So that that carnal veil can be removed so that you can be reborn, right? So Jesus points out that they're judging, right? And he says, I am not judging anyone. This is uh, in verse 15. Well, he's not judging anyone yet. Now, incidentally, this is why many commentators believe that the story of the woman caught in adultery was placed right before this as an illustration of what Jesus is saying. He didn't judge her, even though she was guilty. He withheld judgment and he let her go her way and he gave her the opportunity to change her life, right? To turn away from the lifestyle that put her in the position she, she was put in. I'm not judging anyone. Jesus will judge, but he did not come to earth the first time to judge, but to save, to seek and to save the lost, the scripture says. I think that's in Luke. Um, we've already heard in John 3.17, right? John 3.16, famous verse, you know it already, right? For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm sorry, I memorized it in King James. I memorized it right after I became a Christian. And the first year that I was a Christian, I carried around my, uh, my, the Bible that my grandma gave my parents when they were married. And it was the King James. And my mom gave me that Bible. I still have it upstairs, by the way. I do. And then this makes me sad because I don't know where this Bible is, but she also gave my parents a revised standard version. Now, back then, um, there weren't this proliferation of English translations. You basically had the KJV, you had the ASV, but you know my parents wouldn't have known about that translation. And then you had the revised standard version, the RSV. And so in the note, my grandma wrote, of the, of the RSV that she gave them. Now, the King James that she gave them is super fancy, right? It's smaller, gold leaf pages, like, and it's leather, and it's a Cambridge Bible, which I'm here to tell you, that's pretty much among the best Bibles you can buy out there. They never fall apart. I mean, this thing looks old because it's been around, but it is not falling apart, right? And the thing is in good shape. Of course, you know, I didn't read it like I read, you know, the Bible that I got for myself later. But nonetheless, King James Version, that's what I memorized uh, John 3.16 in, right? All right. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it, right? 
That's John 3.17. Or so that the world might be saved through him. So that's why Jesus came the first time. If the Lord chose to judge, then he'd be within his rights. He would judge rightly. He has been given authority to judge because he is the son of man, which means Messiah, right? When he refers to himself as the son of man over and over again, that really comes from Daniel, uh, the prophetic book of Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel 7, 14 specifically, which presents this figure that is Messiah and he is called the son of man or one like a son of man, okay? Um, so as such then, um, God has given him the authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Jesus already said that in John 5, 27. So this son of man is the one who represents all human beings before God and God to every human being. He's the go-between, right? He takes up everything that it means to be human in a perfect human nature, right? That's, Jesus is what we're supposed to be. And then he represents God to all of us. That's why he is um, perfectly suited and within his rights to judge. God has assigned and appointed this son of man to judge everyone. When he judges, he doesn't do so alone, but as the representative of God, he judges as God wills him. And Jesus' will is perfectly aligned with his Father. So that's what he says here, okay? Um, I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true or valid or right. For I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me, right? Now, they've told him that his testimony is not valid because it's just him that is talking, right? And he said, you're not judging properly, Now he says, um, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two people is valid or true, right? So that's what needed to happen in the law before testimony was accepted in a court. There, There had to be at least two witnesses, right? So if someone was to be tried for a capital crime, right? For, for having done something deserving of death. And there was far more, the death penalty was applied to far more crimes uh, under the Old Testament law, under the Mosaic law than under our law, okay? Uh, you're hearing some statements made by some uh, right-leaning politicians in the wake of this movie, Sound of Freedom, that child traffickers should receive the death penalty. Um, there, there were a lot of um, crimes like that in the Old Testament that resulted in the death penalty. But one person couldn't just come up and say, hey, I saw this guy do this, he, he should die, right? And so you, you bring him to the court of law and the only, the only witness they have is one and that's it. They, they wouldn't be convicted. They couldn't be convicted. There had to be at least two witnesses who would agree, okay? That's what Jesus is saying here. Um, he appeals to the law of Moses to make his point. The two witnesses to what Jesus has said are himself and the Father. The Pharisees don't understand. Now, Jesus isn't testifying about a crime. He's testifying about himself. He's already told them, listen, I know who I am. So you can't tell me that what I'm saying is not true because I know who I am. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I know who I am. I know who I represent. But he said, okay, I'll go with you on this. 
I'm testifying, but so is the father testifying. Well, they don't understand or they refuse to accept because he already claimed that God was his father in chapter five after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda and they got mad at him, right? And they that planted the seed for them to want to kill him. That's what it says in chapter five, okay? So they know that he's making this claim, but they either do not understand that that's what he's saying here or they simply do not accept what he's saying here, that the father he refers to when he says uh, that there are two witnesses, himself and his father, uh, the other witness is God. Um, they want to see a human father. Anyone from Galilee might be aware or have uh, have made the Pharisees aware that Jesus uh, of Jesus' earthly background, that he grew up in Nazareth, right? Who was Jesus' earthly father, his stepfather, not the one that was the pro, his progenitor, but the one that was there that raised him. What was his name? Joseph. Okay. I, I, w- I always used to, you know, teach teenagers and I would call Joseph his stepfather because a lot of young people have stepfathers and there's a very similar relationship or, you know, I would say his adopted father, but he remained uh, the son of God. So that's not really accurate, but he was definitely the person that God put in Jesus' life to take care of him. We, we make much of Mary and we should. She was amazing. She's not the mother of God, right? Uh, she's not someone you can pray to. She's an amazing woman. But I don't think we make enough of Joseph. Joseph was there for Jesus the whole time. What did Jesus do for a living before he entered into his ministry? Yeah, what did his dad do? Oh, yeah. Joseph must have been a pretty good dad, I think. Okay. So they're looking for a human father. Um, and uh, they, they don't indicate that they know who Joseph was, but they could have discovered that if they wanted to. Um, it's already mentioned in John 1.45, right? At the very, very beginning, Philip introduces Jesus to Nathaniel and said, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And that's when Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? And then in 642, so Nathaniel was in, in, in Cana, okay? Was from Cana of Galilee. That's in Galilee, okay? And then in 642, during the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus is back in Galilee again. And once again, they say, Jesus, the son of Joseph. So they're in Galilee, they're very well aware, okay? Now he's in Jerusalem. He's talking to, you know, the high and mighty here. So they're either not aware or they're acting like they're not, they are not aware or they don't care, okay? So Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. So had these erudite, educated religious people been paying attention to Jesus' works and words, and if their hearts weren't so corrupted by self-interest, they would realize that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. They would have been convicted by his signs and by his words. Jesus is the way to God. He's going to say it very clearly in a couple of chapters, right? Or a few chapters in John 14, 6. Uh, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To know Jesus is to know God. 
if, uh, specifically to know his father, if someone seeks God, they will receive Jesus when confronted with his works and words. If you are seeking God, you're going to receive Jesus. When you're introduced to the real Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're really seeking God, that person, that person that is presented in the gospel is going to immediately hit you as, wow, that's God's representative. That's who I want to follow, right? That's just going to happen if that's who you're really seeking. Now, many people would be, you know, that are very religious, um, they're, they're following their religion. Perhaps they think they're seeking God. Maybe what they're really doing is just following a, a concept of God, an idea of God, an idea of God that comes from that religious system. Or in, in our country and in our culture, people just have their own ideas about God that they follow, right? Um, you know, I, I'm not uh, calling this group into disrepute because they help a lot of people. But this is on clear display among uh, those who are a part of uh, AA, right? AA clearly indicates in the third step that you've got to you've got to recognize that you're out of control. Your life is unmanageable. You can't handle it yourself. There's nothing you can do. So the third step it says we turned our lives over to this higher power, right? We realized we couldn't do it, so we turned our lives over. But there's no identification of that higher power. And if you go to an AA meeting, people will have a variety of different concepts regarding that. I've even, I've heard somebody say, you know, your higher power can be a banana peel as long as, you know, it helps you. So, you know, the flying spaghetti monster can be your, I'm sorry, you know, I'm glad that movement helps people. I really, really am. And I think that perhaps there are those that, you know, it's kind of like a step toward or in the right direction. But it's this idea that I can just make up who God is to me and that's valid. But that's not true any more than I can just make up your identity. Can I just make up who you are to me? I can't. If I want to know you, I got to talk to you. I got to have a conversation with you. I got to let you talk to me. I got to let you open yourself up to me, identify yourself to me, right? And then I'll have certain ideas about you perhaps, okay? But I've got to realize that your identity comes from you, not from me, right? So, um, a good example um, is Islam. Muslims believe in Jesus. They really do. But they don't believe in the biblical Jesus, right? They call him Isa, which the, the, the difference in name uh, is not what I'm referring to, okay? But uh, because their concept of Allah is different than the concept of God as Jesus revealed him, then their concept of Jesus is different, okay? So um, Islam does not hold that Jesus died on the cross. The Quran denies that Jesus died on the cross. In fact, uh, there are, are a variety of different ideas that are present within Islam about what happened, but the most common one is that a surrogate went to the cross in Jesus' place. It's the exact opposite of what the cross means. Jesus went to the cross in your place, but they would say that someone went to the cross in Jesus' place. Now, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
And they would clearly say, and I'm not saying anything disparaging. I'm just telling you the, what they would tell you, okay? Go talk to a Muslim and they'll tell you what I'm telling you, right? Now, we can disagree as to whether they're right and I'm, you know, wrong or vice versa. But I'm telling you what they, what they say. And I'm showing you that people have different ideas of God. And as the result, they have different ideas of Jesus to try to match that idea of God, right? So Allah, they will say, has no son. Therefore, Jesus couldn't be the son of God, right? Right. So this is very different than what the scripture presents. Now, worthy of note, when did Muhammad begin receiving these revelations and transcribing the Quran? 500 years after Jesus, the entire New Testament was in place, being circulated, right? And so, you know, along comes this man who claims to be a prophet and really just kind of reorients everything, right? The same thing can be said of Mormonism, right? Um, Joseph Smith reports uh, when he was, I want to say 14, that he received a visit from an angel and... He asked the angel which religion, which denomination he should join, and the angel told him none of them. It's it's interesting that today many Mormons want you and I to think that Mormonism is just another denomination of Christianity when Mormonism started because Joseph Smith did not want to be a part of Christianity, right? Um. And so then purportedly, you know, he's, he's directed to these golden plates and makes this uh, transcription of what's on the golden plates and then they disappear. And it's in some language called New Egyptian, uh, which is a language that never existed, okay? But the result of that is the Book of Mormon. And it presents, once again, a very different Jesus because they have a very different idea of God. Now, Allah in uh, among Muslims, okay, is a monotheistic God, so that agrees with you know Scripture, although we understand Him as Trinitarian in nature, uh, as revealed through Christ. But uh, they believe that He is the, that that is Muslims believe that Allah is all powerful. They would agree with all the omnis that I said that he is omnipotent, that means all-powerful, which I just said, that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing, right? That he's omnipotent, they would agree with those things. Um, in fact, one of the arguments for the existence of God that Dr. William Lane Craig uses uh, is perhaps the best living Christian apologist. Uh, we have gone through his book in here. Brandy, I was talking to you about this last week. I don't believe I told you the name of the book because I think it skipped my mind at the time, but the name of the book is called A Reasonable Faith. It's a seminary level, a graduate level text in apologetics, William Lane Craig, okay? Um, but one of the arguments that he uses for the existence of God is called the Kalam cosmological argument. And it originates among, uh, from uh, a Muslim uh, uh, during the Middle Ages, Okay, so they're on the right track as far as God's essential nature of his power and presence and so forth, um, more so than Mormons. Now, if we looked at the way Mormonism is presented, 
and we look at the pictures that they paint of Jesus and the children and so forth, we might think, oh, well, they, they really are just another Christian denomination. They're just like us. But the reality is Mormons believe that you can become a god. Mormons believe that the god that, that they preach and teach and you know, that is worshipped was once a man. They believe there are many gods over many planets. Does that sound even remotely like Christianity? That's polytheism. Now, they're not saying worship those other gods of those other planets, so it's not like, uh, you know, the polytheism, as in polytheism just meaning there are many gods and there are many gods to worship, right? Uh, Hinduism is a polytheistic religion, okay? Um, And you can sort of pick the God that you want to worship, right? Uh, Mormonism wouldn't teach that, but they do teach that there are many gods over many planets. And Jesus is not the unique son of God. So there's a very different view of Jesus because there's a very different view of God, okay? Um, If you want to know God, you need to come to and through the biblical Jesus. Jesus told these Pharisees, very religious, uh, upstanding Jewish men, you don't know, you know neither me nor my father. And he was referring to his father, God, right? And then at the end of this passage, verse 20, it says uh, that he was in the treasury and yet no one arrested him. Um, the treasury was in the court of the women which is also where the ceremonies of water and light that I mentioned at the beginning were held. And this is how we know where Jesus was when he made the statements about coming to him for water and about being the light of the world. Further, Jesus would have been within the hearing of the Sanhedrin when he made these statements. Now, that is something interesting that I didn't realize until this is why I continually study the scripture. I've preached through John before. I've read John for Many decades, right? But I didn't realize this until I read this commentator. And this is an older commentator from the 19th century. His name is B.F. Westcott. And here's a quote from his commentary. The treasury was in the court of the women, the most public part of the temple. The mention of the locality adds force to the notice of the Lord's immunity from violence, which follows. So it says no one touched him, right? They didn't arrest him, okay? For the Sanhedrin held their sittings ordinarily in the chamber Gassith, which was situated between the court of the women and the inner court. So Jesus continued to teach within earshot of his enemies. He's not afraid because he's not going to go down until it's time for him to go down, until it's time for him to lay his life down. So remember, going back more than a year, the religious leaders have wanted to stop Jesus. They began talking about killing him, as I've already mentioned once tonight, after he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and called him the son of God. You can find that in John 5, 18. They had just, in chapter 7, they had just sent officers to arrest him, but they were so astounded at his words, they couldn't move against him. We talked about that last week. Jesus will not allow himself to be taken and executed until the time is right as set by God before the foundation of the world. Listen to what it says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and this is a passage that is often quoted around Christmas time. Uh, 
But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, that is, buy us back from slavery to sin. Redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. So we're going to see this this hour that Jesus keeps talking about, right? My hour has not yet come. He said it all the way back in... in uh, chapter two, right? When his mother approached him uh, about the, the need for the, the, the wine. Okay, my hour has not yet come. But in chapter 12, as we saw last Sunday, because as you are aware, my preaching on Sunday is scene by scene or theme by theme, and it is ahead of our verse by verse treatment. But uh, we saw in chapter 12 that Jesus' hour had indeed by that time arrived. Listen to this from John 12, 23. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And when he says glorified, he's talking about the whole process of crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And then in 12, 27, just a few verses later, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Right, so we'll hit one more passage here before we take uh, a break for the evening. This is John eight twenty one through twenty four. Then he, that is Jesus, said again to them, "I am going away, and you will look for me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come." So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, "Where I am going, you cannot come." Now he's already said this, right? Um, so they figured out that he's talking about death here. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Right? So he's going to use that, that term, uh, refer to himself as I am here. And also in verse 28, I don't think we're going to get to verse 28 tonight. We'll see. Jesus tells them, I am going away. And they picked up on the fact that he spoke of his death. What they failed to understand is his death would be for the sin of the world. He wasn't just going to kill himself. Okay. Um, He was going to die for the sin of the world. Theirs and ours. However, since they didn't believe in him, Jesus' atoning sacrifice for their sins wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't be efficacious. Right? That's why he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, the last time we talked about Jesus saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. Actually, uh, I can't remember. That might have been on Sunday morning. But nonetheless, it depends on whether you've heard me on Sunday morning or not. But Jesus has said this before, where I'm going, you cannot come. Um, When he was on the cross, there was uh, a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. And one criminal was joining with the crowd and railing against Jesus. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, come down off that cross. And this is found in Luke's account of the crucifixion. And the other criminal says, um, you know, why are you talking like that about him, right? We're, we're on these crosses because of something that we've done wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. He recognized that Jesus was righteous. And then he took another step. This is interesting. 
Jesus is naked, beaten, bleeding, and dying on a cross. And the guy dying next to him turns to him and says, what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Faith. Whoa. But for our purpose, what I want to highlight is what Jesus said to that man. Today you'll be with me in paradise. See, so where Jesus was going, that man was going now. But Jesus didn't say that to the other man, did he? So where Jesus was going, the other man was not going. Where are you going? Heaven forbid you die today. But if you did, where are you going to go? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Son of God, then today or on that day, you will be with him in heaven, in paradise. That's hope. That's the hope I want you to have. That's the hope I want you to hang on to. But that's why Jesus was saying to these religious people, you can't come where I'm going. Well, they weren't going to come right then anyway because they weren't dying, and he knew he was going to die very soon. But also, in the situation that they'd put themselves in, refusing to believe in him, they weren't going to be in heaven with him, okay? Um, and then he very clearly indicates it. You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. And this is the reason the Pharisees, as religious as they were, could not understand or receive. As Jesus told the prominent religious leader Nicodemus, Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. Remember the, the story, uh, the, the narrative in John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus comes to him by night and compliments Jesus. You know, you're a rabbi. And even though he had not gone to their rabbinic schools, and no one can do the things that, you know, you're doing unless he's from God. And Jesus just looked at him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, unless you're born anothen, which means from above, you cannot even see, you can't perceive the kingdom of God. Something has to happen within us before our minds can be open, our mind's eye, if you will, can be open to understand the spiritual realm, Right? to perceive that there is a kingdom that has been established around us, okay? Jesus is the king and his followers are the subjects. We're fallen creatures of earth. That's what he's saying to these people. You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this. That's us too. It's not just because they were bad Pharisees. Well, I'm good, so I'm heavenly. No, you're not. You're fallen, I'm fallen, and we need to be saved. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to come in and give us that birth from above, right? That transformation. We're made of dust and to dust we return. All our natural thoughts are from and about this world and this world is passing away. There must be transformation, this birth from above or a fallen human being cannot understand or receive the things of God. Um, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, right, the corruptible, inherit the imperishable. 
And then Jesus said again in John 3, 5, he said in 3, 3, you cannot perceive or see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And then in John 3, 5, he says to Nicodemus again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There has to be a transformation. Something has to happen inside of you. And that something is a metamorphosis of the spirit. And that happens when you put your faith in Jesus and receive him, receive his Holy Spirit, okay? So this next passage is a bit longer and it concludes with uh, the very famous, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so I really wanna cover that passage next week. So I'm gonna stop just a little bit early. Thank you for joining us online. We appreciate you doing so. And you're always welcome to join us Wednesday night in person. God bless you.